Well, good morning. How's everybody? Good. Good to see you. Good to uh, be with you here to worship this morning. My name is Zach, one of the elders here at Parkway. I hope that you are uh, doing great. Uh, if you've got a Bible, 2 John 12 through 13. We're going to finish 2 John today. And the next week we'll be in 3 John and won't be in that for very long because it's only one chapter. And then we're going to get into the Psalms, some of your favorite devotional books that you've been in for 50 years. We're going to get into the Psalms and we're going to talk about what they really mean. Should be a lot of fun uh, coming up. So we got some, uh, some good things coming down the pipe here uh, when it comes to sermons. Now, as you're turning here, if, uh, as I describe this, if you're a parent, you will totally understand what I'm saying. When I hear my kids playing in another room, I know that everything's fine, okay? It's when they get quiet that I know they're conspiring, that something bad is going to happen. So there are times where they're quiet and I think, oh, they're probably just playing peacefully. That is not the case. When I go upstairs, all of a sudden it is chaos. They're coloring on the wall and they're yelling at each other and they've like decided to rebel against mom and dad. They're like, we want juice. We want juice. And there's like a trash can on fire. And I'm like, what is happening? But then there are other times where I expect that they're doing something bad and I go upstairs and they are being perfect little angels. They're sitting together in the same chair watching Lion King. They're sharing their snacks with one another, what I call baby communion. And they are just, they're being perfect. They're praying in Latin and levitating. They're just doing all the things that I want them to do and it rejoices my heart. Well, what we're gonna see here with John is as he finishes this letter, John takes a great joy, he takes a great delight in seeing that his children are walking in the truth. Throughout these letters, first, second, and then as we'll see in third John, John is this aged apostle at this point. He's almost this grandfatherly figure in the faith. And his joy is to make sure that his church doesn't follow false teaching, to make sure they're walking in holiness, to make sure that they're loving one another. And so he's going to express that even as we come to what seems to be a weird text. Remember, all of the Bible's inspired, even the parts that are greetings, the endings, the genealogies, all that kind of stuff. So let me pray, and then we're going to get into 2 John. Almighty God, I confess that I am not holy enough to be worthy to preach your word. I confess that I am not uh, smart enough to be worthy to preach your word. I confess that I am not, uh, uh, I'm just, I fall short in every area. And yet, you've given us your word. You've taken broken sinners who don't deserve you and you've redeemed us. You've taken broken sinners and you've revealed to us who you are. We don't have to be like the pagan nations sacrificing our children in the fire to make the gods make it rain. You've told us in black and white who you are and what you've done and how we might have salvation. So I pray that uh, you would send the Spirit and he would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. It's in Christ's name, amen. Verse 12a, let's get into this text. We'll start with the first half of verse 12, 12a. He says this, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. I know that's everybody's favorite Bible verse. I know this is the verse that you have printed on a t-shirt when you go to the gym or crocheted on a pillow, but let's break it down because there are some things here that I think are really important. Let's look at the first part. Though I have much to write to you. John realizes though he has spent years teaching the faith and preaching, there is still more work to be done. You understand you never become fully sanctified this side of eternity. We don't believe in Christian perfectionism. You never hit this point to where you're like, I've arrived and I still haven't died yet. That doesn't happen, okay? The gospel continues to shape us. We are always learning more. We're always putting sin to death, etc. So let me tell you why this is really important, just even right out of the gate. The way that many churches 
define practically the Great Commission is this. Go therefore and make shallow converts of all nations. That's what they do. The the goal doesn't become fully formed disciples. The goal becomes let's get as many people saved as we can and they change in a sense the Great Commission. If God wanted more people saved, he would have elected more people. The goal for God is not just quantity, it is quality. That is why we're commanded to go, that takes, I don't know, a plane ride, to baptize, that takes 30 seconds, and then to teach them to observe all that I've commanded. That's the part of discipleship that takes the longest. It takes your whole life and you never even arrive until glory. That that we are commanded, and John realizes, though he spent years teaching them, I still have more to teach you. You still have to grow. You still have to put sin to death. You still have to learn more about God's word. John, right out of the gate, is saying, we haven't arrived yet. There's still more you need to know. There's still more that you need to grow. And so that's something we need to understand. The Great Commission is not simply to make half-baked converts. It's to make fully-fledged disciples. If you just get a bunch of recruits, you don't have an army. If you get a few well-trained soldiers, now you have an army. And the same thing is true with God's army, the church. So even right out of the gate, John is gonna give us something that's helpful for us. Even in this ending of this letter to say, continue on. You've never arrived to where you can stop studying theology. You've never arrived to where you can stop reading your Bible. You've never arrived to where you no longer have to put sin to death. It is a day-by-day crucifixion of self the Christian life is. Sorry, I just said that like Yoda. I don't know why I said it that way. How the Christian life is a day-by-day crucifixion of self. Now, here's the other thing I want you to see. Notice that there are things the apostles taught and said that we don't have in the Bible. One of the things that we push here at Parkway is the sufficiency of Scripture. John taught other things that weren't recorded. The apostle Paul says that he wrote other letters that we don't have. We have at least two other letters we know about to places like Corinth. Jesus said things that we don't have a record of. The Gospels will say that if everything Jesus said had been written down, all the libraries in the world couldn't hold all that content. He did a bunch of stuff. Are we therefore missing something? No. God's word has given us exactly what we need. We don't need every letter that Paul wrote his mom or something like this. God has preserved for us in the scriptures everything we need. We have the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible, and that is God's sufficient revelation to us, okay? Let's keep looking. Look at this next part of verse 12. I know you're gonna get really excited about this. I would rather not use paper and ink. I'm gonna talk a little bit about ancient letter writing. Isn't that exciting? You got up this morning, you said, man, I really need to go to church and I really want someone to tell me about paper and ink in the ancient world. Well, here you go. Here's why I'm doing this, because it's in God's word. Everything in God's word is important. Everything in God's word is valuable. So let's talk a little bit about this and then I'll give you a practical application. How ancient writing was done, they used a bunch of different materials, clay tablets, stone, pottery, bone, and various metals, but the most common things that people would write on on the ancient world were called papyrus, not just a terrible Microsoft Word font, papyrus, and something called vellum, okay? Something called vellum, let's talk about each of these. Papyrus was where you took these stalks that grew near the water. So imagine baby Moses being placed down into the river, and his mom is moving stuff out of the way. What is she moving out of the way? Papyrus, these reeds, these stalks that grow by the water. And what they would do is they would take those stalks and they would strip them down and they would lay several strips of papyrus vertically and several strips horizontally. And then they would then take a hammer and mash it together or a rock and mash it together and then let it dry in the sun. And you had paper, which is incredible. You couldn't just ride your camel to like yield office depot and get paper. They have to make it out of these 
plants or whatever it is. The Egyptians discovered this in 3000 BC, which is incredible when it comes to papyrus. Now, there was another thing that they used called vellum. What is vellum? Vellum is dried animal skins. They would take an animal skin like leather and they would scrape it to make it thin so that you could write on it. Now, vellum is better than papyrus because it lasts longer. It's more durable and you can write on both sides of it. And then how did they actually make a book? Now, think about this. This is really important. When you think of a book, you think of like the Bible in your hand where you flip pages and there's writing on both sides. That is what is called a codex. That wasn't invented until hundreds of years after the time of the New Testament. People had to invent books. That's crazy to me. A book in the Bible is a scroll, okay? Actually, the word volume from the Latin volumen is where we get, it means something rolled up. It's where we get the term volume when a library has a bunch of volumes. A book is a scroll in the ancient world. So you would go home and your kid would be sitting on the couch reading, you know, Harry Potter or whatever, or scrolling through it like that. Okay? It's a scroll. They would take pieces of papyri and they would connect them together and then roll it up and that was a book. The longest ones are usually around 35 feet long for scrolls. There are way longer ones, but that's the average size. So pop quiz for you. Why is the Gospel of Luke a different book than uh, the book of Acts, even though it's written by the same author and it's the exact same story? Because the book of Luke would have been over 30 feet and the book of Acts would have been over 30 feet. So you had to separate them just practically. So your scroll didn't get too long and that's why Luke and Acts are separate. But that's the idea of a book. When you think of the Lamb's book of life, you probably think of Jesus like looking over this huge Bible. Nope, the book in Revelation would be a scroll, okay? Now, ink, you're saying, Zach, please tell me more about this. I really wanna know about ancient ink making. I've got these problems in my marriage and this will really help me with that. Well, ink was made through taking charcoal, water, and what's called gum arabic, which is this thing that makes the ink thicker. They didn't have like a fountain pen or something they would use. So they would use charcoal or what is called oak gall. What is oak gall? When a wasp lays eggs in a tree and they become these gross wasp babies, it takes this part of the tree and makes this knot that you can grind up and use it for ink, okay? So that's how they're making ancient ink. Now, you need to understand, when, we're, when we have these copies of the early New Testament, they are written in all capital letters with no spacing and no punctuation, okay? So people typically would have to read out loud. To read silently was very awkward. It was very odd. You had to be very smart to read silently. St. Augustine talks about his teacher Ambrose reading silently and how brilliant he must have been to be able to do that when you don't have spacing between the words and you don't have punctuation, Okay? So that's what's going on with ink and these kind of things in the ancient world. Fascinating. What does that have to do with us today? Let me give you an extremely relevant application of this passage. You ready? Look what John says. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. And then he's going to go on to say, instead, I want to come and talk to you face to face. Now listen to what I'm about to say. Could there be any relevance for somebody saying like John, there's some important things I need to say but I'd rather not use one medium, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I'd rather not use a textual medium, but rather I would like to deal with the issue face to face. Is that relevant for today? Does that have some sort of application for us today? Absolutely. It is insane to me that with the cultural upheaval going on in our culture, that Christians and even pastors have thought the best way to deal with an issue that's controversial that needs a lot of nuance is in 280 characters on Twitter. That blows my mind that they would do that. Instead of sitting down, talking to people, it's just the way the world responds. 
Why do you get an email from Amazon or Facebook or Discount Tire saying, just want you to know, we stand against injustice? I'm like, who stands for injustice? Is that the issue that we're fighting about? Listen, Christians are to care about justice, but we have to define it biblically, not the way culture does. And listen to this, we have to condemn injustice wherever we see it, wherever we see it. To just talk about one side of an injustice means you don't care about justice, you care about power. You care about pushing your political agenda. So one of the reasons that we at Parkway haven't taken, like Jeff said in the announcements, a four-week series to talk about these different issues is because we refuse to give in to the crazy. We refuse to play that cultural game. You you know the question when people say, have you stopped beating your wife? What's the problem with that question? If you answer yes or no, you're saying that you beat your wife. So what culture has done is they've said, have you stopped beating your wife? Answer now, yes or no, don't give any qualification. And we've said, you don't argue with crazy. You don't play into that game. You don't play into those rules. That's not something that we are going to do because we're Christians. We're not gonna play into postmodernism. We're gonna play into pre-modern thought like we get in the Bible. If you think the main thing that's going on right now is related primarily to race, you do not understand the issue. You are naive on this. This is not primarily an issue on race. You want me to prove it to you? Because countries all over the world are having protests and they don't have the same history of the racial problem that we have here in America. This is not this. The, the issue is something you maybe have never heard of. It's a, it's a subset of postmodern philosophy called critical theory. And critical theory, the way you define people is not the way the Bible defines people as Christians or non-Christians. In critical theory, the way you define people is the oppressed and the oppressor. Those who have power and those who don't have power. Now, what happens when you play into that game? Guess where the church gets put? The church gets put into the category of oppressor. If you say power is bad and not having power is good, then Christ, who has all authority, and his church, who will inherit the whole world, we are now the bad guys. Be careful the games you play into. It's not about the issue. It's about what's behind the issue. When we say homosexuality is wrong, we are the oppressor. When we say that feminism is wrong, we are the oppressor. They can say none of the biblical books were written by women, so it didn't take into account our perspective. You have to realize the issue is not what people think is the issue. It's about what's behind the issue. I guarantee you, if you and another Christian friend that disagrees with you on this issue would simply sit down and get coffee, you would be able to both condemn both racism and also rebelling against the government and rioting. You would do both. Because the issue that you're really arguing about is not those things. Christians typically agree on those things. The issue you're really dealing with is this. Should the church deal with issues the same way the lost secular world does? That's the issue. We agree on the problem, we don't agree on the solution. That's where you're gonna have to see how Christian your thinking really is. So if you want a statement from Parkway, let me give you a few statements. At Parkway, do we think actual racism is bad? Yep, it's bad. At Parkway, do we think resisting the authorities and rebelling against them is bad? Yep, we think that's bad. At Parkway, are we against injustice? Yes, but we're against all injustices because the Bible is. The Bible won't let us take partiality. Anywhere we see injustice, we have to speak against that. What is your view, Zach, of, uh, and what is Parkway's view of things like turning the other cheek, loving your enemy, praying for those who persecute you? Jesus said them, so we're for those things. But I didn't need to say any of that. You already know that. That's not the issue. The issue is we are not going to take what is God's and give it to Caesar. That's the issue. That's the issue. 
Now I say all of that to say what John realizes here is this. I have something I need to say. It's important. It's not that it's not gonna get said. But the medium matters. I could write you these things in pen and ink, but you know what would be better? You know what you would better receive? You know what would be more loving? You know what would produce more joy? Is for us to sit down face to face and have a chat. So that's primarily how we've been dealing with it. I've had multiple meetings this week sitting down with people talking about this issue the way John would encourage us to talk about this issue. It's not that we haven't taught on these things. Like Jeff said in the announcements, we're way ahead of the curve. It blows my mind how many churches, this is the first time they're thinking about this. They're way behind the curve. We already dealt with this in our Proverbs series, and we're going to deal with it again. But the most important thing for the church always has to be gospel first, everything else second. So yes, do those things, pay attention to those things, but make sure you don't lose sight of the gospel. Let's look at verse 12b, second half of verse 12. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. He starts off, instead I come to you to talk, I'm sorry, instead I hope to come to you and talk face to face. Now here's something that we see that's really important here. The importance of human to human interaction. We've never realized this so much than after coming out of a season of quarantine, amen? Like we are wired by God for community. Adam, it's not good for him to be alone from the beginning. That's not good. Humans are wired for community. We have to have one another. We have to have personal interaction or what happens? We go crazy, which is what we're seeing, okay? What do we do with prisoners who are acting up in prison? We put them in solitary confinement. What an interesting punishment. Grown-up timeout because we're so wired for community that if we don't have it and if you leave someone in the hole too long, they will go crazy, okay? You ever seen the movie Castaway with Tom Hanks? Yeah. He's on an airplane, which crashes, of course, because airplanes usually crash. They're terrifying. And so he's on an airplane, and then he's on this island, and he's by himself. And so to keep from going crazy, he even has to invent someone to talk to. Wilson, right? We are wired by God for community. So let me say something spiritual, and then I'm going to say something else kind of political. What is happening today? We talked about ink. We talked about social justice. It's going to just keep happening. The thing you need to understand is this. Fellowshipping with other Christians is something God commands you to do and it is a spiritual discipline. In the same way of reading your, your, that you're to read your Bible, in the same way that you're to pray, in the same way that you're to fast, in the same way that you're to evangelize, one of the things the Bible will push you to do over and over and over is to fellowship with one another, okay? So again, as a reminder, during the whole quarantine thing, uh, the church decided to say, Keep your distance and we won't meet for a few weeks, not because the government has told us to. We do submit to the government, but not if they tell us to do something against the Bible. And, but we're just gonna do so because we love one another. So biblically, you always have a right to follow the Bible. Now here's the controversial political thing I'm gonna say. Let's talk about constitutional law for a second. Let me, let me God-splain you something for a quick second. The First Amendment, okay, which defends... Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, including the press, and the right to assemble, okay? When it comes to that freedom, what the Supreme Court has decided throughout a lot of, sorry, through a lot of precedents is simply this, that the government cannot restrict the content of your speech, but they can make non-content restrictions. Zach, what does that mean? Here's what it means. If I want to go out on a public sidewalk and quietly express my views to other people, I have a right to do so, no matter how crazy my views are. If I want to go up to people on the sidewalk and say, please worship the God Emperor Lizard Zorp, I have a right to do that. And no matter how crazy it is, the government cannot say that I can't do that. That'd be a content restriction. 
But what I can't do is get a bullhorn at three in the morning and start yelling about how we should all worship Zorp. Then if I get shut down, my rights haven't been violated. That's not a content restriction. That is a non-content restriction. Everybody with me so far? Well, here's something that you need to understand during the quarantine. What several churches have sued and have said is that the government can recommend that we not meet, but that they do not have the constitutional right because it's a content restriction. The Bible doesn't just command, listen to people express their views online. It says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. It's actually a content thing. And so there's this debate going on in several courts right now over whether or not the government could merely recommend for churches not to meet or they can actually forbid it. Same thing with visiting someone in your home. In the Bible, they break bread in each other's homes and they fellowship. So I say that to say this. We should value fellowshipping with one another. During a a season where there is still a pandemic, we need to be wise, but we're doing so not because the government has a right to tell us how to practice our Christianity. It's simply because we love one another. Everybody with me? Okay. Let's keep looking here. And said, I hope uh, hope to come to you and to talk face-to-face. Now, something interesting here, the idea of face-to-face here is the idea of personalness. In Greek, it literally says, I want to come and talk to you mouth-to-mouth. Now, that doesn't mean like I put my mouth on your mouth and we both talk at the same time and then we pass out from CO2. That's not the idea. The idea is personalness, okay? That's the idea, that there is something that is important about dealing with issues one-on-one. There's something important dealing with issues in person. Keep that idea of personalness in your mind. Same way in the Old Testament when it says that Moses and God used to talk face-to-face. That's not literal. God doesn't have a face. He's everywhere. The Bible says no one has ever seen God. The idea, again, is personalness, that God is talking to Moses in a special way directly opposed to Israel that has to hear it secondhand through Moses. Why do you do this, John? So that our joy may be complete. Now he gives the reason. Why is this personal interaction important? Why are dealing with these issues uh, together one-on-one important? So that our joy may be complete. This is a huge theme in John, John's writings. First John 1.4. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Second John 4. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. He rejoices greatly. His joy is complete. Third John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. If you are a parent, there is no higher joy than when you see your kids start to get it. Am I right? So I had a kid that was scared to go down the slide and then like two months went by and he was fine going down the slide and my heart rejoiced. There are times where my kids will rip a toy out of the other one's hands and they get in trouble and then a year later, they still do it but they do it less and my heart rejoices. If I ever get a chance to baptize my kids, I pray that God saves them I hope that God redeems them. I will, I will not be able to baptize them because I will just be a wreck. They'll just be baptized in my tears. I won't be able to, I'll just snot and everything because there's this joy that comes with seeing other Christians flourish, with seeing your children walk in the truth. And John has this. So let me ask you this question. Does hanging out with other Christians, does fellowshipping with other Christians, does loving other Christians give you a sense of joy? Let's talk about introverts and extroverts real quick. Some of you are extroverts and some of you are introverts. Neither of those are bad. It's just the way that God made you. An extrovert is somebody who finds their refueling, who finds uh, this uplifted feeling of feeling better and having their batteries recharged when they hang out with other people. They also have a tendency to analyze and think about things with other people out loud. An introvert, by contrast, is somebody who, 
when they've had a long, hard day, they've had a difficult day, they don't want to be around other people. They want to be by themselves or they want to be with their family. And they have a tendency to process more internally. Which of those two do you think I am? An introvert. I'm kidding. A huge extrovert. Like at the end of a terrible long day where I've had a bunch of tough meetings, I want to go home and host a party. I want to give a lecture at the end of a long day. That's what I love. That's what, that's what fuels me. Now, if you're an introvert, you're like, that is the worst. I do not ever want to do that. I wish all of life was quarantined. That was the best. That's the introvert, okay? Now, neither of those are bad. God has wired you that way. But when it comes to fellowshipping and loving one another, there are times that both sides need to move, okay? Sometimes extroverts can be a little too extroverted, okay? As Jeff Ashley has said to me before, Zach, why don't you be 80% of yourself? (laughs) Extroverts, sometimes they're too much. So I've been watching a lot of uh, TV with my kids and uh, Winnie the Pooh, who he just wears a shirt and no pants, but anyway, there's Winnie the Pooh. He has a friend named Tigger, and Tigger is too much. He doesn't enter a room, he pounces on people. He pounces on them through their door and then jumps around yelling. And I think, I love that guy, that's me, that's this guy. But you also don't wanna be Eeyore, right? That's always by himself and down in the dumps. There's, there's some semblance of balance. So I just say that to say, you should enjoy hanging out with other people regardless of your personality type. If you're extroverted, there are times to serve your brother and sister that you be a little less of yourself. And if you're introverted, there are times where you have to, and it's good for you, to be around people sometimes when you don't feel like it. One group can't hide their eccentricity under the banner of extroversion. The other group can't hide social awkwardness under the banner of introversion. We both have to grow because Christ always demands that we change. Well, this is who I am. Jesus' message from the beginning is repent and stop being who you are, okay? Because who you are in God's eyes is the real you, not what your default tendencies are. So regardless of whether or not you're an introvert or extrovert, it doesn't matter. We're called to love one another. We're called to fellowship with one another. It should rejoice our heart when we hear about somebody else who's a Christian and we hang out with them. Joy is the highest. Listen to this. I think it's important. Joy is the highest when it is shared with others. Joy is the highest when it is shared with others. You ever done this? You ever been playing, uh, you've been like a gym and you take a basketball and you throw it across the gym and it just swishes. And you're like, yeah, who saw that? Nobody. It's the worst. Joy is better when it's shared with others. Drinking a bottle of wine by yourself is depressing. Drinking a bottle of wine with friends is life-giving, right? Or watching a funny movie. There are some funny movies that I can watch by myself and I will laugh by myself, but it's way more fun when it's with other people. In fact, my wife hates it. If I know something funny is coming, I'll sit there and we're watching a movie and I'll just watch her. I'm like, she's gonna miss it. It's a funny part. And she'll laugh and she'll look at me and she's like, stop looking at me. And I'm like, but baby, the Bible says our joy is the highest when it's shared. Is the highest when it's shared. That's why he wants his joy to be complete. To see these people growing in their faith, to see them uh, loving Christ, to see them loving each other. Verse 13. The children of your elect sister greet you. What a weird way to end the letter. You'd expect him to say something like, sincerely, that sweet apostle Paul, or sweet apostle John writing you this letter or something, but he uses this language of the children of your elect sister greet you. What does that mean? The children here are members of John's church, and the reason the church is called a sister is because the churches are family. They're the family of God, with God being a father, okay? So when he says the children of your elect sister greet you, what he's saying is this, My church is greeting your church. That's all it means by that, that weird phrase. That's all that means. Let me prove it to you. Let me show you why. First of all, the way that John started his letter was by calling the church an elect lady. Second John 1, 2. 
the elder, that's John, to the elect lady, that's the church, and her children, meaning her church members. He uses the same language here. He says, dear church, who's an elect lady, because the church is the bride of Christ, I just want you to know our church greets you as well. Peter does the same thing, 1 Peter 5, 13. She, meaning the church, who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen or elect, sends you greetings and so does Mark, my son, okay? Notice the loving tone of one church caring for another church. Let me just wrap up this point point. I'll move, move to something else. The Bible commands us to love lost people, yes? Uh, we're gonna back up in discipleship here. The Bible commands us to love lost people, yes? Yes. The Bible commands us to love our enemies, yes? The Bible commands us to love other Christians, yes? Yes, but there should be a priority to the family of God. There should actually be a priority to Christians. Let me show you this in Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Sometimes during the week, people will come up to the church uh, to ask for money or whatever they might need that don't go to the church, they don't attend here, they're not members here, they'll just knock on the door and they will ask for something. And there are times that we give them things. There are times we've given them gift cards or helped them get gas in their car or whatever, but sometimes they ask, don't you have like a church fund that you can just give me us money out of? And we say, we do have that fund, but you know who we use it on first? Members. We give priority to the household of God to those that we've covenanted with. We look out for each other first. Yes, we love lost people. Yes, we love our enemies. But there's a special way that we love each other. Look at verse 13 again, and I'm gonna tell you why this is really important. The children of your elect sister greet you. Notice that John identifies himself, his primary identity, with the church, okay? We as humans long to have a group identity, just look online, look in the media. It's all about group identity. Are you on this side or are you on this side? Are you in this group or are you in this group? Humans long to have a group identity. Where does John find his primary identity? In the church, in being a Christian. Not in being male, not in being Jewish, not in being rich or poor. His primary identity, the way that he will sign off his letter, not even using his name, is in the church. So this is huge right now. In our culture, everyone is saying, what group do you belong to? So let me give you some Bible things here. Our primary group identity is not a political party. We should always be willing to call out critiques even in our own political party. Our primary group identity is in Christ, is in the church. Our primary group identity is not our physical family. How about that? Blood is thicker than water, but baptismal water is thicker than both. Your primary identity is not in your family. This is one of the errors of infant baptism is that they forget that the church is, the family of God is redefined in the New Testament. It's not your physical family like in the Old Testament where you'd be circumcised because you're born Jewish to Jewish parents, but rather your new family is the spiritual people of God, those who have faith. Your primary group identity is not your physical family. Our primary group identity is not our race or ethnicity. That's obviously very relevant right now. That's not your primary group identity, okay? The way the Bible sees things, the way God sees things, how does God divide humans? Maybe that's a great question. God has the most objective view, period. He's infinite, he's all-knowing. How does God think of people? The primary categories that God uses and therefore the most important categories are saved and lost, Christian and non-Christian, not these other categories. Part of the problem with what's going on in our culture right now, is that the primary categories are not being defined by the Bible, they're being defined by the culture. 
And that is an unbiblical way of thinking to even buy into that. That's why I said we don't respond to a game where we disagree with the game. We disagree with the rules of this game. This isn't starting from a biblical worldview. We are not waiting for racial reconciliation. That happened 2,000 years ago on the cross. What's being pushed is a view of racial reconciliation that doesn't need Jesus. Let's have heaven on earth and peace now without the second coming of Christ. And then we wonder why it doesn't work. You're not going to get rid of crime before Jesus comes back, and therefore you're not gonna get rid of crimes done against black people until Jesus comes back. The solution has to be a gospel solution, not something that says we trust Rome to be our savior instead of Christ. Jeff said this in a conversation last week and I thought it was really good. He said, you have to be careful with any social movement, right or left, any social movement, right or left, that, because it can sometimes be a Trojan horse. You know what a Trojan horse is? It's something that everyone should agree on. Look how beautiful this horse is. Isn't this a beautiful statue? How dare you not just say how beautiful this statue is? But then you let it into your city and soldiers crawl out of it and kill everybody, right? And Brad Pitt's there looking great, killing a bunch of people. That's what's happening, okay? Be wary of just commenting on the horse and not what's inside the horse, and not what's inside the horse. Our primary group identity is not our sex or gender. When, when, when Paul says that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, he's not saying highlight the things that make you different from other Christians. He's saying downplay those things. Focus on what unites you, not what makes you unique, what makes you Christian, what makes you in common with other Christians. So your identity is not found primarily in your sex or gender. Our primary group identity is not our sexual orientation. The LGBTQ lobby would say that's who you are, and Jesus says that's not who you are. Our primary group identity is not our age. If you think, I'm just an old guy, all these dumb millennials, or conversely, you think, I'm a millennial, old people don't know anything, that's not your primary group identity. That's not your primary group identity. Our primary group identity is not in being an oppressor or being oppressed, or in having power or lacking power. Again, that's postmodernism. Postmodernism is really about this. Let's take what's on the fringe and put it in the middle so it has power. It's not about equality, it's about there was a power group and now we need to have someone have power over that power group. That's the idea of postmodernism with what's called critical theory. Our primary group identity is not our sports leagues or the teams we follow. You can be an Aggie and be a Christian. You can be a Longhorn and be a Christian. You can be a Baylor Bear and be a Christian. Barely. Barely. That's a joke. I didn't go to any of those schools, so I don't care. Guys on staff are like, this, and I can't believe that, and they free. And I'm like, I just, I went to a little Bible college. There's like 400 people. Uh, I don't care. You guys fight each other. I'm, I'm, busy, I'm busy doing other things. Our primary group identity is not our economic status. Do you see yourself as the rich I'm somebody who I've arrived in the upper echelons of society. Or conversely, do you see yourself as the poor? Neither of those are your primary identity. Your primary group identity is not your education. Whether you went to Harvard or whether you dropped out of high school, that's not what gives you value. That's not who you belong to ultimately. You belong to Christ. Our primary group identity is not our gym, CrossFit box, or physical fitness friends. By the way, if you ever open a gym, please call it physical fitness friends and spell physical with an F. Okay, physical fitness friends. That's not your identity. Your identity is not in CrossFit. Your identity is not in the gym. That's not your primary community. Your primary community is the church. Our primary group identity is not conspiracy theorist groups. Now, this is a weird thing that's arisen uh, recently, and I don't know why. A lot of Christians don't find their identity in being a Christian. 
They find it in belonging to some group that has like Gnostic-like secret knowledge, and that's where they find their identity. So your primary group identity is not in the flat earthers, 9-11 truthers, Holocaust deniers, people who are anti-Western medicine, which is a new thing, I don't know why, uh, but, uh, or anything involving tinfoil hats. That's not your primary group identity. Your primary group identity is in Christ. Stop causing division over things the Bible doesn't cause division over. Our primary group identity is not our denomination. We work with other denominations. Our primary group identity is not as Southerners or Northerners. Our primary group identity is not the past sins of our ancestors. Our primary group identity is not our business circles or our military units. Our primary identity is are you a Christian or a non-Christian? Are you saved or are you lost? Do you love Christ or do you love something more than Christ? Those are the issues. Those and those alone are the issues. All those other things, I'm not saying you can't be in business. I'm not saying you, you obviously have to be of some race, you have to be of some gender. I'm not saying that there's not, uh, that you can't belong to other groups. What I'm saying is your primary identity, your primary group identity is as a Christian, someone who belongs to the bride of Christ. Let's look at 13 one more time and then we'll be done. The children of your elect sister greet you. Notice the importance here of Christ's church. Notice the importance here of the church. She has many names. The assembly, the elect, Christ's bride, the temple, holy priesthood, new creation, the people of God, the household of God, the Israel of God, one loaf, the pillar and buttress of truth, citizens with the saints, and many more. But whatever you call her, she is the church. She is the bride of Christ, and if you love Christ, you must love her. John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist Church, says the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. The 16th century theologian Richard Hooker says, the church is in Christ as Eve was in Adam. Now think about that. Eve was taken out of Adam's side to be his wife. From Christ's wounded side flows forth his bride, the church. St. Cyprian says this. This is something quoted by the reformers. Not, not, you, you hear this, it sounds very Catholic, but it's actually quoted by the reformers as well. He can no longer have God for his father who has not the church for his mother. If anyone could escape who is outside the ark of Noah, then he also may escape who shall be outside of the church. Now, when the reformers use this, they don't mean the Roman Catholic sense. we're, We're not saying that in addition to faith in Christ, you must follow the sacramental system of the Roman Catholic church. You're saved by faith in Christ alone, amen. What the reformers are saying by using this quote against their Catholic opponents is what they're saying is, there is no saying, I love Jesus, but I hate his bride. There is no saying, I'm the bride of Christ, but I'm also not the bride of Christ. It's a package deal. If you like me and you hate Katie, you and I are not cool. If you like me, to quote the great theologians, the Spice Girls, if you wanna be my lover, you gotta get with my friends, okay? That's what's going on with the church. And if it's weird to you that he just called the church our mother, the Bible already does that. Galatians 4, 25 through 26 and 31. Now Hagar, Paul, by the way, is about to use some allegorical interpretation. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. You can't follow God as father without following the church as mother. The Bible calls the, the Jerusalem above, meaning the church, Christians, they call the church our mother. Not the Jerusalem down here. He's talking about unbelieving Jews. That's like Hagar. She's not legitimate, but rather the church is our mother. Well, I thought about for a long time how to end this sermon 
because there's a lot of things it covers. It's really this ending that we've tried to take and use so that we can still learn things on every part of the Bible because every part of the Bible is inspired. But I wanna end by sharing the gospel, okay? And here's why. John, the entire time, in 1 John, 2 John, we'll see this again in 3 John, what he has been trying to do is push the gospel. He's been trying to correct false teaching. He's trying to encourage true teaching. He's trying to encourage people to walk in joy and he does so by sharing the gospel. But because I've been watching so much TV with my kids, I'm gonna share the gospel by using an analogy from the Lion King, okay? I find that it's helpful in sharing the gospel to do it different times or different ways uh, because sometimes one thing clicks for somebody that doesn't click for another person. But I was watching it with them this last week and I thought, I've gotta say something here during my sermon about this. So here's the gospel according to Lion King. By the way, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, it's been like 25 years. It's a cartoon, live action. It's a play on Broadway. So here it is. Lion King begins the way we all know it begins, right? That's all I'm gonna sing. I'm not gonna sing any more of the song. I know you want me to. The sun is coming up and the music is excellent and all of the animals are going to Pride Rock. Now, what is Pride Rock? It's a throne. It's where the king rules. That's what Pride Rock is. It's a throne. And they're going to the coronation of the king, Simba, okay? So they're traveling all across the globe to all from all nations, all flocking to Zion, and they see there's, there's Pride Rock, there's this throne, and this weird witchcraft monkey named Rafiki. He represents the priestly class. He represents the prophetic class because kings don't get to just say, I'm a king. Kings rule by divine right. God puts kings in their place. And so what he does is he goes up to the king, Simba, and what does he do? He cracks open a delicious looking melon and he dips his thumb in it and he wipes it across his head. Do you know what that's called? That's called an anointing. That's what anointing is where a priest pours something on someone's head to say, you're the king. You see that in the Bible. Christ is the anointed one. So he takes this, this uh, melon juice and he wipes it across Simba's head. He might as well be making a cross, right? Might as well. It's so clear. And then what he does is he takes the king and he walks up on Pride Rock. And what's he do? He lifts him up. And all the animals bow the knee. The giraffes bow and the zebras bow and the elephants bow. And then the sky opens up and the sun shines on him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Kind of like that, like at Jesus' baptism, okay? And everything is good because there's a good king. But then the story gets broken. There's a pretender to the throne. What's his name? Scar. He's not the real king. He's fake. He's a pretender. And he lets in all the evil, the hyenas. He lets in the demons, the losties, these kind of things. He lets those in and everything becomes ruined. I'd have to watch it again, but I noticed something this time watching it that I'd never seen. Every time where there's a scene with Scar ruling, it's always dark. There's always, it's at night or there are clouds in the the sky covering it up or he's in a cave, it's dark. And guess what happens? There's no food, there's no water, the grass is not there, the trees don't have any leaves on them because he's not the real king. When mankind rebelled against God and gave our allegiance to Satan, we put someone on the throne who's not the king and everything went bad. That's what happened. Why is the world broken? Because we walked away from God, that's why. And everything is not going well, but then you get the return of the king. Simba comes back when he's grown up, and what does he do? He vanquishes Scar. They fight, he's wounded in the process, his his heel is bruised, and he casts down Scar, where? To the fire, there's fire down there, and he casts him down to the fire. He's defeated his enemy, and he looks over at Rafiki, who's the priestly class again. And what does he do? He takes his staff and he points him to go up on Pride Rock. 
And as Simba is taking the throne, going up onto Pride Rock, I saw something again that I had never seen. It shows a picture of an antelope skull in a dry riverbed, and the water starts flowing and washes it away. The death has been washed away because of the return of the king. And he goes up on the rock, and he lets out a huge roar, which is great, because throughout the movie, little Simba, when he's little, he couldn't roar very well, right? He tried, but now it is a terrifying roar as the king. And what happens? The sun comes out, the grass returns, there is flourishing. There is flourishing. Now you're saying to yourself, Zach, in this gospel story, what, are, what about Timon and Pumbaa? What role do they play? Well, that's obviously Jared and Tim, okay? That's obviously, that's their role. That's their role in the story, okay? They're friends of the king. Okay, so here's what I'm saying. If you maybe are a visitor, maybe you're not a Christian, here's what you need to hear. Christianity is not about you being a good person. Christianity is not about you doing better. It's not about you trying harder. It's this, that there is one king, capital K, and it is Yahweh. It is the Trinitarian God of the Bible, and he has created everything, and under his rule, everything goes well. Just check out Eden. It's pretty great. But we have rebelled against that king. We have put ourselves on the throne. We've put our issues on the throne. We've put the devil on the throne. We'll put anything on the throne other than Christ. But because God loves us, he has sent the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son, to live the life we should have lived, to cast out what is evil. That's what Jesus is doing in his ministry. Jesus in his ministry is undoing the effects of the fall. And one day he's coming again. And right now he offers you a full pardon. Follow the king. If you will repent, you have a full pardon, not just for the sins you've committed, but even the sins you're going to commit. It's a full pardon for past, present, and future sin. But there is a day coming when there will be no more pardon offered. There is a day coming where Jesus, meek and mild, riding a donkey into Jerusalem as the Prince of Peace, will come back on a war horse drenched in blood. That's the imagery, and it is imagery, that's used in the book of Revelation for him. Repent now, because there's still time. What do I have to do to repent? Do I have to clean up my life? Nope, it's just a free gift. You just accept it. You turn from your sin, you ask Christ to save you, bow the knee to King Jesus. That's how John would want us to talk about his letter. Let's pray. Almighty God, we love you and we thank you. We thank you for this text. I confess that it's a strange text, but yet you've still put so much wisdom there. Ancient wisdom 2,000 years ago, yet that we read it today and it's applicable. We should love one another, we should fellowship with one another, our joy is highest when it's shared. Some issues shouldn't be addressed by text. Some issues shouldn't be addressed online, they should be addressed face to face. And we belong to your church. You love your bride and we're your bride and we thank you that you love your bride, even though we whore on you a lot. We thank you that you are gracious. You, like Hosea, in the story of Hosea, pursues a rebellious wife. We confess, Christ, that you do the same thing. We love you and thank you. In Christ's name, amen.